Hello, and welcome to the Over 50 Health and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin English, founder of The Silver Edge. Our mission at The Silver Edge is to inspire men and women in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond to live their strongest, healthiest, most fulfilling lives. In this podcast, we share stories of amazing individuals who are doing just that to help motivate you to become the healthiest version of yourself, regardless of your age. And now, on to today's podcast. Hello, my guest today is Jane Thurnell reed Jane is in her 70s and loves going to the gym and lifting weights. She regularly posts gym videos on Instagram at Thriving Jane to encourage other older people. It wasn't always like this. As a child, she hated exercise and couldn't even touch her toes. In her 20s, her diet was half bottle of scotch, 40 cigarettes, chocolate, toast, and orange juice. Now she's a passionate vegan and committed to staying healthy and strong as she gets older. She writes a blog at www.janethernalreed.com about health and happiness regardless of your age. Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. And I'm very glad to have you. Thanks again. So I certainly want to hear your thoughts on healthy aging and some strategies there. But let's start at the beginning. Why don't you back up and tell us what were you like as a child? Well, as a child, I was very unfit. I hated exercise. My parents didn't really take exercise. We didn't have a car. We um, So my parents used bikes to as a form of transport, but not as a form of of recreation. My mother had this theory that if you ran around the garden in the hot sun and got sweaty, that you could get ill. So if I got, you know, if I was running around the garden, she'd be going, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. You'll get all sweaty and then you could get ill. So I wasn't encouraged to exercise at all. I was the I think my memory is that I was the only child in the in the class who couldn't touch their toes when we were doing things like standing on one leg. Um, I could only do that for maybe two seconds. Um, so I was, you know, I, I was really unfit, not interested in exercise at all. I think because because I post gym videos now, people just assume I've always been fit. That I, you know, as a child, I I loved exercise and did lots of it, and that's really, really far from the truth. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't see the point of it. And, and as I say, my mum was like, "It's going to make you ill. Don't do it." Yeah, I, I find that interesting that uh, your mom would would jump in there and dis- actually actively discourage exercise. And I, I'm guessing that that may even be a gender thing, right? Um, I suppose that perhaps. In those days, maybe boys would be encouraged to be sweaty and dirty and play and be rough and tumble and get that exercise, but maybe not so much for girls. Is there some truth to that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. We were spe- I, I think my mom did despair of me a bit, that I wasn't very ladylike. And mm-hmm. uh, she always used to say to me, why can't you be like Margot? Margot was a very good, well-behaved child whose white socks always stayed up at her knees, unlike mine that were always scuffed and round my ankles. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I think it is, you know, there is, I mean, my bro- I don't remember my mother saying that to my brother at all. 
So what happens after, so you're, you're in childhood and as you get into your teen years, still rather unactive or? Yeah, rather unactive. I quite enjoyed hockey, but that was mainly because I quite liked it because I could hit somebody's ankles who I didn't like. <laughs> and when, when I was 15, I actually broke my arm. And um, so I wasn't able to do any sports at school at all. When the school reports were written, I, I, I did one sports lesson uh, while, during this time before I broke my arm and then I had my arm in plaster and couldn't do anything. And when the end of term reports came, came home, the um, sports teacher had written continues to make good progress. So <laughs> I obviously wasn't noted for my for my sporting activity or, or otherwise she would have been aware that I wasn't there because I'd broken my arm you know if I was somebody yeah. who was really good at sport and and my 20s my 20s I always refer to them as my misspent 20s I got very heavily into alcohol um, mm-hmm. particularly whiskey I used to have a bottle of whiskey by the side of my bed so in the morning, before I got out of bed, I mean, people say, how much did you drink? And I, I suspect about half a bottle. But, but because I was just like pouring it into a glass, it's a bit difficult to know for certain. Because I would drink before I got out of bed in the morning. I would have four or five cigarettes before I got out of bed in the morning. My diet during the day consisted of toast, marmalade, lots of chocolate, some orange juice, uh, coffee, and then lunchtime would be more alcohol. In the evening, I worked in a pub. Um, mm. In those days, people used to say to the barmaid, oh, have a drink when they ordered. So I got lots of free alcohol that way as well. So, yeah, I mean, my 20s were very misspent and very unfit. Your misspent 20s, yeah, yes. I'll, I'll say. Um, yes. Certainly having, having a drink and a, and a few cigarettes before getting up out of bed, that's not going to um, create optimal health, is it? No, no, not at all. Um, and, and I had a lot of health problems at the time as well. Sure. So, uh, I mean, not surprisingly, yeah. Right, not surprisingly, mm-hmm. yeah. So, okay, we've got you in your misspent 20s, um, <laughs> obviously not being healthy. What, what changes? And when does it change? A bit changed. Uh, so, something that changed in my 20s is I, um, I went to there – was, there was research being done on the flu vaccine. And you could be pe- – uh, sorry, the flu, the flu virus, not the vaccine. You would be paid to be a guinea pig. So I went – this was how I stopped drinking alcohol. I just went cold turkey because you were – in these, um, kept in these rooms for 10 days while they would put the flu virus up your nose and then count how many handkerchiefs you needed used and things. And um, I was on my own for 10 days, apart from seeing a doctor twice a day and having food left outside the door. And during that time, I realized that the life I was leading, I was actually uh, effectively committing suicide. I was slowly killing myself. And during the 10 days, I realized I actually quite like myself, not a huge amount, (laughs) but quite a bit. And so, you know, I didn't need to kill myself. So I came out of that, out of that and actually then stopped seeing quite a few friends because all, all, all the people I knew were people who drank. And I realized that if I wasn't going to drink like that, I needed to, um, sadly, um, end some friendships. 
which you know I, I'm sad about, but but was the right, absolutely the right thing to do. I'm sure. Yeah, and we hear that quite often, uh, specifically in substance abuse type situations, right, um, and other toxic environments where you have to change that environment, right? So it yeah. sounds like yeah. you had this ten day isolation, just kind of quirky, right? All of a sudden, you're in this study. You can't drink. You're alone. You're not with the, the, the your friends and mates that you might be heavily drinking with. And you have this epiphany, it sounds like, this yeah. self-awareness yeah. of, hey, I'm on this very destructive path. It's it's I'm not practicing self-love and self-care. And somehow you came out of that with this realization, enough self-awareness that you said to yourself, okay, new path, new start, and that's going to include some pretty drastic and tough changes. I yeah. mean, clearly yeah. um, changing the, you know, your, your friends and the people that you're hanging around with is a, is a major life change. So where do we go from there? And, and how hard is that? I mean, did you relapse? Did you, was that it? Did you just never look back? Um, I, how does that work for you? I mean, I do drink alcohol now. I don't drink a lot simply because I don't particularly enjoy it anymore. It, yeah, I mean, one of the different things that made made a difference was when I uh, had my two children. Um, then you're responsible for other human beings, and you know, so your priorities, I think, have to change. And I started doing a bit of going to the gym, a bit of swimming. You know, I did a little bit of physical activity, which I enjoyed, but. I don't think did me a huge amount of good because I just didn't, you know, that time, the idea of women lifting heavy weights, it just wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't an idea. Thing. It wasn't right. the thing that you did. And I know now when I go in the gym and there's all these young women and they're lifting really, some of them really heavy stuff. And I'm just, I'm just so envious because, you know, when I was their age, there was there were no role models doing right. that at all right. uh, that I was aware of, so I'd be lift, lifting very light weights, chatting to people, having huge long rests and things like that. Um, yeah, and not making a huge amount of progress. What was your diet like during this time? So now you've got a family, you've got like you said, some kids that you're responsible for. Um, you're. It sounds like you're becoming more health conscious. You've made the decision to quit or reduce greatly reduce yeah. the drinking. I, I know you've been a vegetarian for a long time. When did that start? Yeah. I, well, I first became vegetarian when I was twelve. I didn't know. I, I mean, I actually didn't know the word. I didn't know any vegetarians. I just said I don't want to eat dead animals. Um, my mom thought I was being doing something totally outrageous and wasn't prepared to humor me, which, you know, because obviously you need to have meat. So she didn't replace the meat in my diet. Um, and after six months, I got ill. Doctor came. My mother said, of course, she doesn't eat meat. Doctor said, oh, she's got to eat meat. You've got to eat meat to live. I mean, fortunately, doctors now know that's not true. But at that time, that was the view. So I went back to eating it. I did actually become vegetarian in, in my about 18, 19, 20. And my diet in my 20s, I mean, nutritionally was very bad, but it was actually a vegan diet. Uh, sorry, a vegetarian diet. Mm -hmm. So I, I was vegetarian for over 40 years altogether. Okay. And it sounds like early on vegetarian, but not really a healthy vegetarian. No, that's um, right. At, at some point that's going to transition, right? And you're going to make healthier choices in yeah. your diet. Yeah. Okay. And 
when does, I know that you're now vegan and have been yes. vegan for what, four, five years? Five, five years, yeah. And so tell us what, what made that transition from being a, a vegetarian for so long? Because it sounds like you were probably a vegetarian for 30 plus years. Is that for, right? For, Before, over 40, yeah. Okay. Before yeah. transitioning to, to veganism. Talk, yeah. to, talk to us a little bit about that transition and what prompted it. I became vegetarian because of uh, the. Uh, I didn't want to kill animals, so it's the animal cruelty aspect of it. And for a long time, I didn't realise that you there's also cruelty involved in production of milk, uh, production of eggs, and so on. As I began to realise it, I sort of kept on pushing it to the back of my mind. Then, about five years ago, I went to a a, a big event. Uh, Jane Land and Matthew Glover, who from Veganuary were there, they had a stand and I got talking to them. And they're the founders of, of Veganuary, which is the movement. I think it's only really starting now in the US, but certainly in the UK is big. We're encouraging people to try going vegan, particularly in the month of January. And I got talking to them and I thought, you know, I need to do this. This is crazy. You know, I need to do this. So, um, so I've become vegan. I mean, I was already eating healthily in terms of a vegetarian diet. But since I've become vegan, I think my diet's even better. One of the things I've noticed is that I seem to, I seem to be gradually losing my sweet tooth. And that's, you know, I think that's because the bugs in your, in your digestive tract change when you have more uh, more vegetables and stuff that help that reduces your desire for um for, for really sweet stuff so um and i think it helps me to recover faster in the gym and things like that so i'm, I'm really you know i really think and, and there's so many reasons now to be vegan i mean the the animal suffering the environmental reasons you know we've, we've just got Everything's coming together, I think, to say that everybody should be certainly more plant-based, even if they're not actually vegan. And and the food is getting great. <laughs> I will say, I will say that certainly the plant-based foods have come a long, long way. We hear a lot of the reasons that you just mentioned, right? There's the ethical reasons, there's the environmental reasons, there's the health reasons. Um, there's a lot of reasons why people might choose ve vegetarianism or veganism, but I do think that there is a big movement towards Eat, eating more plants, eating more, yeah. especially whole yeah. plants. And there's, I think also because veganism and vegetarianism have become rather popular um, and are growing, there's also a distinction between healthy veganism and not so healthy veganism, yeah. right? Just because yeah. something's marked vegan, I think that people often think, oh, well, that's, that, it's healthier, right? It's, it, it's made of plants. But when you flip some of these things, some, especially these highly processed vegan foods over and read the the label, maybe not so much. So, I think that people should be aware that there's, you know, and there are people that don't care. There are people that are only vegan because of ethical reasons. Yeah, and look, yeah. I, you know, if this isn't, you know, nutrient dense to the max, then uh, that doesn't matter to me. I'm eating it because it tastes good and, and I've, I feel good about my choices. But I, I do think that it's interesting that there's a, a huge growth of awareness around veganism 
and uh, vegetarianism as well. And there's movements like we've had the the Meatless Mondays, yeah. which doesn't seem to be as popular now, but that was certainly a big thing here in the U.S. for a while. And like you said, um, Veganuary is kind of a new thing here, but I, I understand that's that's something that you guys have done. Yeah. Over on your side of the pond for quite some time. Now, speaking of Veganuary, you are a, a trustee. Is that, yeah, is that I right am. for those yeah. folks? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel very privileged to be a trustee because it's such a, a wonderful organization. It's very non judgmental. You know, I mean, unfortunately, there are some vegans out there who get, you know, you should be vegan. <laughs> there is a militant wing of vegans. There's that's, a militant wing, yeah. undoubtedly. Yeah. Whereas veganuary is like, look, try it for a month, see how you get on. We'll send you recipes. You know, you get an email every day with recipes, with ideas, and stuff like this. So it's very inclusive of people. It accepts that sometimes people will eat things maybe that they shouldn't. Um, because they didn't realize, you know, you ate something, didn't realize that it had um, lactose or something in it, you know. So Veganuary is very forgiving of all that and I think is all the better for it. Yeah. Okay, great. So obviously we, we know what you eat, right? You, I, yeah. Is it safe to say that you that you are also choosing healthy choices? I mean, what is a, what does a day of eating look like for you? Is it primarily whole foods or are you? I am generally whole food, but I have the attitude of a sort of 90, 95% whole food, 5% rubbish uh, sure. is my diet. So, you know, I I like vegan chocolate. Uh, chocolate. I like vegan ice cream, and there's room for all that. I mm-hmm. mean, my at the moment my diet is really normally breakfast is oats with um, goji berries, dry, dried goji berries usually, and um, sultanas with a bit of oat milk. Um, if I go to the gym, when I come back from the gym, I'll usually have some bread and uh, peanut butter or something like that, sometimes marmalade. Lunch is usually a huge salad um, with bread, rice, potatoes, corn chips, whatever. <laughs> and then during the afternoon, I might have a snack of some sort. Evening is usually, yeah, is more vegetable-based meals and things. But as I say, you know, I found that my my desire for sweet stuff is really, I can now have chocolate biscuits, vegan chocolate biscuits in the house and not have to devour the packet instantly. Yeah, you've lost that craving, as you said. Yeah. Okay. Well, talk to us a little bit about working out. You mentioned that you hit the gym somewhere probably in your 30s, just kind of casually. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned you didn't really have female role models. What you're doing today is very different from that. Uh, in fact, I saw a recent Instagram uh, post where you're just repping out some 60 kilogram, which is about 130 something pound deadlifts. Yeah. Um, so yeah, talk to us. Talk to us about that journey. How you became an ambassador for strength as we age. In my 40s, I learned to ride a bike and um, started doing some long distance bike riding. And then a friend who did some uh, local bike riding with me said to me one day, you ought to go to the gym, you know, I think you'd really enjoy it. And I said, Oh no, no, you know, I don't think so. I'm a bit old for the gym nowadays. And she was like, no, no, no. Why don't you come? I think you'd really enjoy it. Oh no, no, no. Um, anyway, eventually she persuaded me to go. So I went to our local gym and, uh, started doing a bit 
I, I really started to enjoy it. And one of the employees at the gym a bit took me under his wing when he realized that I was actually enjoying it. And I, I will remember, I think, till the day I die, that he gave, he said to me one day, are you strong? And I went, I'm, well, I'm quite strong for my age. And he went, are you strong? And I went, well, for my age, I guess I am quite, you know, I'm quite strong. And he said, oh, no. He said, so what he got me to do was he got me to, um, he got me an Olympic bar, which is 20 kilos, which is like 45 pounds, I guess, something like that. And I had to lie on the bench and do a bench press with it. And up to that point, I'd been mainly using much lighter weights and I'd been using machines. And he gave this, you know, the, the weight machines that commonly mm-hmm. women, older women in particular, use in a gym. And so I, I lay down with this bar and I pushed the bar and my right arm went up and my left arm hardly moved at all. And I, in fact, I nearly fell off the bench because, mm. the, you know, I was being tipped because yeah. my right arm was going up and my left arm wasn't. And I was truly astounded at that because it, it, what it showed me was the huge big difference between my right arm and my left arm, which I'd not notice when I was using um, lighter weights or when I was using machines. And I think then that suddenly this recognition that, hang on a minute, there's something more here. So over the next few weeks, I worked so that finally I could actually get the bar up and it would stay, you know, horizontal and that my left arm became as strong as my right arm. My left arm was the one I broke, you know, when I was talking earlier about uh, about um, breaking my arm. So I think that really began to make sense to me. Um, and then we moved and I came up to Exeter and I, I joined an independent gym, where which was inc- incredibly welcoming. It's a really, really welcoming gym, you know, whatever shape, size, age, whatever you are. And I decided I'd work with a personal trainer, which I'd never done before. And so I started working with my this personal trainer called Will. And to begin with, we were working with very sort of light weights and things. And then gradually, it got heavier and heavier. And I found I really loved deadlifting. That was a real, just an amazing experience for me. I mean, if I could, I would deadlift heavy every single day of my life now. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you can't yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, so, and I've, I've found that, you know, by deadlifting, by, by using heavier weights, I get a much, you know, I'm making progress. One of the things that really upsets me is when I get older women in the gym and they're using very light weights, chatting, not putting any effort into it. And you know very well they won't stay because they, what they're going to say is it's boring and it doesn't work. Right. And, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of older people are frightened of injuring themselves. But there's now research which is showing that older people really need to work out hard. I was reading something earlier about that um, if you're doing, say, three or four sets of 10 repetitions of each exercise, then you should be working at about 80% of your maximum effort for one rep. And that applies whether you're 25 or whether you're 85. Now, your one rep maximum is going to be 
much more if you're 25 than it is if you're 72, like I am. But it gives you an idea that people really need to be working out hard. Obviously, you have to start light, but but don't stay light. You've got to keep keep at it. That's a key point there. I think a lot of people miss a couple of couple of things in that story. Um, one is you're describing progressive overload, right? Where you start with one weight, let's say it's 50 pounds, and maybe you work out at a week at 50 pounds, and next week it's 55 pounds, and yeah. then the next week it's 60 pounds. To your point, that's what makes us stronger. That's what builds our muscles. Um, as opposed and it's also to, incredibly satisfying. It is. And it, yes. And I think that that flows over into other areas of your life as well, yes. right? It, it does yes. build your muscles, but as you become stronger, you become more confident, more competent, more capable. Um, you're less likely for falls and injuries and illnesses. So there's just wonderful things that happen as, as you get stronger. And to your point, whether people are younger or older, you still see very commonly in gyms and especially you know, it's more common with females because there's still a little bit of a stigma about them. It's changing rapidly, but women with barbells and strength training, but you very often see, uh, say an older woman in the gym with little five pound weights in each hand and it never changes. That's what they do every time. And what, you know, hats off to them. They're doing something which is way better than nothing, but they are not in fact getting stronger. And there's something to be said about getting stronger and all of the benefits that it brings about, th- again, through, throughout your life, throughout your life, right? To, to make you able to climb stairs, to take hikes, to do things that you love to do and to, to remain active and vital. So hats off to you. you. You're a great ambassador for that. Your Instagram's got a lot of great videos of you doing your workouts and to your point, we need more examples of that, right? Yeah. What I'm trying to be is a sort of to inspire people to be a role model. I'm right. not necessarily doing the the thing perfectly. You know, I've had people say to me, "Oh, you know, your back should be straighter" or something like that, and I go, "Yeah, I I, I know, but but the purpose of this is not to show you how to do it perfectly. Right. The purpose is to say to you, look, you can do this too. Right. You know, get in the gym and you know, lift as heavy as you can." Uh, I love that. I love that. So what does a typical workout week look like for you these days? Um, I work out normally three times a week for an hour. Mm-hmm. And I work out, you know, I'm working out hard. As I say, you know, this idea of being at about 80% of your maximum for one rep. So, you know, by the end, I'm really, really, really tired. Yeah. <laughs> and then I bike. I bike everywhere. Um, so I usually do about 30 to 40 miles on the bike a week, which is just, uh, I bike to the gym, bike home again. Uh, we live outside Exeter. So I bike into Exeter, bike home again and stuff like that. So it's usually about 30 to 40 miles. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. That's a well-rounded week, right? If you're spending three hours in the gym, strength training, and then obviously you're getting some cardio on on your bike, a, a good amount. Speaking of the bike, let's talk a little bit about the bike because I know mm. we glossed over this. Um, you've mentioned biking a couple times now. You've done some pretty incredible bike rides. Yeah. Why, why don't you talk <laughs> a, a, a little bit about some of that? I, I know for a fact you've done some some very long bike rides. Yeah. Well, well, I didn't really l- learn to ride a bike till I was in my mid forties, and that was when I met. John, uh, my partner now of 20-something years, and he was a triathlete and a keen cyclist. And he put me on a stationary bike, and I started pedaling on this stationary bike. 
And after about five or 10 minutes, I stopped. And he said, why have you stopped? And I said, because I'm sweating. This was going back, <laughs> even yeah, after right. all those years, back to my childhood, you know? Yeah, that programming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that deep programming. Uh-huh. Anyway, he persuaded me that I ought to, you know, I would be okay. I wouldn't die if I carried on for a bit. So, so I learned to ride a bike then. I saw, I, I discovered over time that actually it took me a long time to warm up on a bike and that, like, I, I started going out with other people and on the way out, I'd be struggling to keep up with them. And on the way home, they'd all be complaining that I was going too fast. And that was because by then I'd warmed up. So I began to realize that I was actually better as a long distance cyclist and not very good doing, you know, 10 miles fast. Um, that I would hate it. I would struggle. I would be slower than everybody else. So I started to look at doing, um, trips and uh the first one i did i did a a trip in cuba where we did 50 miles a day for five days and i started off at the back of the group and gradually found i was further forward um i you know i might i was a better cyclist than i realized and i did various other things and then in um I was doing a, a bike ride in Corsica and I, I, an American was on it and I got talking to him and he was talking about bike rides in the US. And, and I said to him, oh, I'd never thought of going to the US and doing a bike ride. I'd always thought about doing it in Europe. So he said, oh, it's some great bike rides. Da, 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 da. So when I came home, I um, Googled, you know, riding bike rides in America and what came up was Cycle America, which is their ride is from uh, Washington State over to just north of Boston. Right. Um, and I looked at it and thought, I'd love to do that. Um, and decided I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford the time, couldn't afford the money, da, 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 da. Anyway, it took me about four or five years. I was on their mailing list for four or five years and eventually did that. And I and I really enjoyed it. And I think one of the things about long distance bike riding is you're going from A to B. And that's that's your task for the day. You know, particularly if it's an organized one where they take they take your luggage and they feed you, then all you've got to do is go from A to B and there's nothing nothing else you need to do. So life becomes very simple. And for folks listening, that's from Seattle to, like you said, just north of Boston, Oh, it's four, right? no, 4,200 miles. I was going to say it's 4,200 yeah. miles. So yeah. that's, that's quite a trip. Yeah. So, and this would, would have been just under, under 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and how, how long does that take? That's it was an incredible it, distance. It was nine weeks. We got one day off a week. The highest mileage we did, I think, on one day was 114 miles, which really bothered me because I'd never. I mean, and and the first week was Washington State, and they had um, a heat wave, and I had three days back to back, each day 90 plus miles. One of the things you find you find out a lot about yourself on these long distance rides. I can and, imagine, yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that I discovered is it wasn't important. I mean, obviously, you need to prepare for it and be fit, as fit as you can. But at the end of the day, it's about what goes on inside your head and about your capacity to say, I'm going to do this and just keep on doing it. So yeah. you're describing grit and determination. Yeah. Uh, um, right, okay. 
now you've you finished that bike ride and that's not the only long bike ride you've done though right no no i did i did one that was from st petersburg to istanbul that's 2000 miles right yeah yeah mm-hmm. and i think 19 people set out and maybe nine finished it and i right. actually i actually rode quite a lot of it on my own it was 10 countries and going through these countries and not being able to speak their language um, and riding on my own, just riding along. And, you know, I had a map <laughs> and I knew where I was supposed to be going. I had an emergency phone number, but I used to quite just enjoy doing it on my own rather than, you know, you could do, do the day with other people. So I would ride along on my own. And, and I just... You know, I'd think to myself, if there was an emergency, I would be able to cope. And again, it's about, you know, like what goes on in your head and what. And, and I feel that doing these, that sort of long distance bike rides, it's really challenging. And it's really outside my, it was really outside my comfort zone. But it actually gives you, you know, I just think if um, if there was an apocalypse, you know, maybe I wouldn't survive. But if I did survive, you know, I would be resourceful in that situation. And there's some sort of, I don't know, um, satisfaction. Sure. Something yeah. in that, some reassurance, you know, that I, I can handle things. Yeah, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the the strength training bleeding over into other areas of your life. That yeah, strong, absolutely. confident, capable feeling and certainly overcoming something like 2,000 miles uh, through 10 different countries where you don't speak the language, a lot of it on your own, that has to have a lot of carryover, yeah. uh, that kind of life experience. Now, you did another, I, I believe it was an 800-mile ride solo. Is that right? Oh, yes. that Yes, I did from John O'Groats in the north uh, in Scotland uh, to Land's End in England. It's the longest you can, longest distance you can go. On, on the on the British Isles, mm-hmm. and um, and I did it on my own, and it was it was pretty it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. It took me sixteen days. It was about a thousand miles, but I had a headwind for fifteen days. Ooh. A really bad headwind. In fact, I mean the the weather forecast. I stopped watching weather forecasts because you'd put the weather forecast on the TV for the next day. And on several days, the weather forecaster would start with, and the strong winds continue. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it was, the winds were very strong. I had a, um, a sat nav that didn't, a bike sat nav that didn't work. So I, I got lost a lot. When I, when I came home for the first few nights, John said I was like muttering in my sleep, I can't do this, I can't do this, this is too hard. And then he said, one night, after about 10 days, I suddenly said, hooray, hooray, the wind's behind me. Wow. <laughs> and after that, I stopped talking in my sleep. Yeah, you had to get, you had to work through that. Yes. But, it, but again, you learn, you know, it gives you confidence Sure. Um, I mean, I just feel that many older people stay absolutely within their comfort zones. You know, they stay with what's comfortable. They don't push themselves out at all. And I mean, my mom was like that. And what I saw with her was that as she got older, her world got smaller and smaller. And, 
you know, I'm determined not to do that. I want to keep my world as big as possible. And so I try to do things that I find scary. <laughs> not all the time, but sometimes. That's very well said. You try to keep your world as big as possible. Um, I think that's very eloquently put. And to your point, I think we see a lot of people growing older and their worlds are growing smaller. Yeah. So as you're doing these bike rides, especially on these solo sections, how are people that you come in contact, um, what, what is their impression? What, what are these? I, I can imagine myself being somewhere and seeing somebody like you kind of riding up and you've got your kit and you've got your bike. And I say, hey, what, what are you doing? You say, well, I'm on this 800,000 mile <laughs> ride. I'm looking around and you don't have any mates with you. Um, what, what, do people, what do people say to you? What, is, what are their reactions? Oh, people are always, always intrigued. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was in India once and this guy came up to me and started talking to me and he, he said, I hope this is not rude, but I would like to ask you how old you are. And I told him and he was like, and then everybody gathered around and I had this huge mm-hmm. crowd. Um, and it's a great way to see a country because you're at a speed that and, um, that's not too fast. And you can also talk to people. And and when I did this end-to-end in uh, from St. Uh, John O'Groats to Land's End, I did it with a tiny, tiny backpack. And I would arrive at the – I booked places to stay, and I'd arrive, and they'd, they'd look at me with my tiny backpack, tiny, you know, little pack that sat on the back of the bike. And they'd say, oh, oh, have you got support with you then? And I'd go, no. <laughs> and they'd be – but you've hardly got any luggage, and I say I know. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, how much can you carry when? Uh, yeah, it's all it's all on your I just bike. bought you the same to... thing. You know, I I had two pairs of things, and I just alternate all the way through. Right, it's amazing. I mean, I think one of the things also doing long distance bike riding has taught me is how little you actually need. You know, you can, you know, because if you're carrying it yourself, then you you you, you end up pairing it right down. Or if you don't, you end up sending a load of it home or giving it away. You know, you realize that you actually don't need that much in terms of physical stuff to live and to be happy and to be involved with the world. Very well put. And I, I think this is a good segue. I read on your website that you give away a, a portion of your income mm. um, regularly. And I've heard you on other podcasts address this. And I think that given that last statement, this might be a good place for you to talk a little bit about how your giving came about and why you why you continue to give to, to charity specifically. Um, I actually think I get a lot more out of it than the charities do. I've always given a certain percentage. And I, I used to own my, my own business up till I sold it uh, um, a month ago. And... Um, as I gave more away, my business did better. And I, I, what I used to do was each month I would calculate how much money, how much profit I had, and then I would do a percentage of that. And as I increased the percentage, I kept on, the business just kept on doing better and better and better. And people have said to me things like, it's karma or it's God uh, rewarding you and so on. I actually don't think it is. I think doing it every month, what I'm saying is more money will come. There will be more money. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to hold it tight. Um, I can let this money go. 
because there will always be more money coming into my life. So, you know, I've given a lot of money away. Um, because of that, I get invited to some quite interesting events. A couple of years ago, I got invited to number 11 Downing Street, which may not mean anything to, you, to your people, but number 10 Downing Street is the Prime Minister and the uh, number 11 is the Chancellor of the Exchequer's House. So that was really sort of special to be invited to a reception there. I've met some really interesting people out of it. Um, and one, I mean, I think the world's often a horrible place. Um, and it's very easy, you know, if you read the news to get sort of down and depressed and fed up about things. But But what I try to do is, you know, if I'm sort of feeling, oh, you know, they were all the, you know, this person's awful or this politician's bad or, you know, look what's happening to the Amazon or whatever. Um, and then what I try and do is remind myself that because of the amount of money I'm giving away, I'm actually saving people's lives, you know, so that I sort of draw my attention back to, okay, you know, there's this big picture thing where there's a lot of awfulness going on. But right now, I personally am helping to make the world a better place by giving giving money away. And um, that's great. You know, it helps me not to get overly depressed about <laughs> the state of the world and, the, you know, how people behave and things like that. So, yeah, yeah. I, th I You know, for me, it's obviously it benefits the charities, but it ben I, I think I benefit a lot from it as well. And also, you know, it just reinforces to me that we actually don't need that much. You know, the research, all the research shows that you only need a very low level of money, you know, to meet some basic needs and have a bit over for, I don't know, going to, you know, paying for a personal trainer or buying a bar right. of chocolate and stuff. Yeah. I, I love that, that you say it, it benefits you as much or more than the charity. And I, I think that the, having that kind of mindset certainly it's it's indicative of we, we i think it comes through in your personality that's who you are i i thought that it would be important for us to at least mention that i know we're yeah. talking primarily about health and fitness but that certainly is a part of holistic wellness it sounds like is, is yeah, part I mean, it's of your part philosophy of my mental health i guess mm -hmm. sure i would say yeah well obviously you've you've accomplished a lot you continue to inspire people what's what's next for you what do, what do you you're also an author we haven't mentioned that i believe you have what is it 10 10 books yeah, available yeah, something along yeah. those lines you're um, a speaker yeah i i've got um i'm going to be a tedx speaker in hopefully 2022 it was supposed to be april 2021 but it got cancelled then it was going to be october 2021 that's been cancelled we're hoping for early next year and the title of my talk is Older, Fitter, Stronger, rather than Older, More Decrepit, More <laughs> Downhill. So I'm looking forward to doing that. And I'm writing a book on healthy aging about, you know, my attitude to, to health and to aging. And I'm trying to simplify stuff, but make it accessible. So I'm working on that. Um, and just, you know, I enjoy, I enjoy writing for my blog. I've just written... I, one of the things I enjoy is is um, there's a lot of scientific information out there that doesn't seem to sort of filter through to people. So I like writing for my blog about that. Um, and it's it's really interesting to see. I mean, for example, I, I um, often it gets triggered by talking. I was talking to a friend who's been 
thinks she has osteoporosis. And she's 14 years younger than me. And we were talking about this. And I said, you know, I've had some really nasty falls, but touch wood, don't break it. You know, I haven't broken anything in situations where I, I probably ought to have. And, you know, why is that? And I was talking to her about it. Um, and then I did some research and I discovered that the U.S. National Osteoporosis Society, that may not be the, anyway, it's, it may be association or something else, but they are recommending a plant-based diet for osteoporosis. You know, so I like to share that sort of information because mm-hmm. um, that's surprising. You know, when you think about osteoporosis, everybody goes, oh, women need to drink cow's milk, osteoporosis. Milk, yeah. What I'm trying to do on my blog is very much not go off on harebrained ideas, but try and get stuff that has been researched has and, and, and so on and researched on human beings, not on animals. Um, I don't quote animal research because I'm not in favor of animal research and I don't think any way you can necessarily carry it over to humans. So I want to do a lot more writing for my blog. Yeah. Okay, great. And I'll, I'll make sure I put up in the show notes the links to your blog and, and to Thank your you. Instagram because both yeah. of those are, are great and have a lot of information there. So as we're wrapping up, what, what tips would you have for older adults for staying healthy, for getting strong, for being vital and remaining youthful? That you can be stronger, fitter, healthier than you've ever been. That it doesn't have to be, you don't have to go downhill. You don't have to stay the same. You can actually get stronger, fitter, healthier. Um, As you get older, most of us have more time so you can go to the gym, you can read stuff online, learn what you need to do, um, you can take classes and so on. So that, you know, this, this idea that as you get older, you get frailer, weaker, that's true for most people, but that's because they don't t- take exercise, they don't look after their diets, they don't push themselves to keep those boundaries wide. And those are the things you need to do. I think. Very well said. And I wholeheartedly agree with all of that, obviously. Uh, the things we've talked about here, the the exercise, the getting, not just exercise, but getting, working at getting stronger, doing new things, new challenges, certainly your nutrition, um, recovery, and becoming older, fitter, stronger. I, I think that's great and certainly look forward to to that coming out. Yeah. Yeah. As well, as well as the TEDx talk. We know that you got a blog. We know that you got your Instagram, and I will again link to those in the show notes. Is there anywhere else you'd like people to connect with you? That's fine. There's good. Yeah, both of those okay. places. Okay, great. And I've just Jane, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. You are a fantastic ambassador for healthy aging. You're an inspiration, and I wish you all the luck in the world in your future endeavors. Thank you very much, and thank you, thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's our show for today, folks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please tell your friends and please consider subscribing and giving us a five-star review. All the show notes and much more are available at our website at silver-edge.com. That's silver-edge.com. So until next time, stay strong.